Well, good evening. Just want to give a slight edit for the video announcement. It's now that we only have one service. Our, our services are 60 minutes-ish. Just, just saying, 60, 60 minutes-ish. I was talking with someone before the service, and I was like, I, I don't mind two services. I don't, I don't like that clock. So I uh, settle in, right? Settle in. That's good. Oh, no. That's scary, isn't it? Hey, let me just give a few shout-outs for some people that have been online with us. I don't know if they're online tonight, but they have been for the last several weeks. It's uh, Paul and Gloria Johansson. Uh, if you're from this area, if you've been connected with uh, Elam, which is the group that we're part of as a church, uh, with any amount of time, then you, then you know those names. Gloria, her, her smile is absolutely radiant, is it not? Uh, when you're having a conversation with her, you just feel the love of God just pouring out of who she is. Uh, Paul Johansson, you know, most of us Pentecostals, there are moments when we are prophetic. There are moments when he's not prophetic. Just if, if you understand that, if you know Paul, then you know that that's true. Hey, I want to give a shout out too to uh, Pastors Tom and Gil Wells, Vanessa's parents. Uh, Pastor Gail had a hip replacement this week, so Claire uh, is down there helping uh, with her and her physical therapy, so she's been there for the last few days, so they're watching online, so we just want to say to Pastor Tom and Pastor Gail, uh, thank you for believing in the word that God gave to you, because this church is here because of you, for planting this church, the sacrifice uh, that it took, so we owe you a great debt of gratitude. So uh, just a couple more. I want to give a shout out to uh, Pastors David and Jillian Freeland that are here with us tonight. Come on, live and in person, not on a camera. So warm city life welcome. So that's Doug and Chrissy's daughter, husband, and family. So we're excited that you're here. It's good to see you. It's always good to see them. And uh, all right, one more thing, and then we're jumping in. Um, I just posted to my Facebook page, which I know is a dangerous thing to say when you're getting ready to preach, because then everybody's going to want to go there, but it's a link to a YouTube video, so if you're watching, we're going to know, because you have to put your earbuds in. So, uh, and then when you do that, then we're going to talk about you, and you won't be able to hear us, because you'll be watching the YouTube video. But it's a uh, prophetic dream that Tammy Masters shared with us. I think Tammy is here. Is Tammy here? There's Tammy right over there. So a prophetic dream that she shared with us. It was incredibly impactful. We felt it was too long in length to really, be, now that we're in a 60-minute service, so uh, she recorded it uh, on, a, on a YouTube link, and then I posted that link uh, on my uh, Facebook page just today, and you should check it out. E even if you're skeptical, skeptical about the idea of prophetic dreams, you should at least watch the first part of it, because she lays down a teaching on the prophetic. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And then her prayer at the end is so good. So thank you, Tammy, for sharing that with us and, uh, and, and uh, being obedient to what the Holy Spirit was prompting you to. So we're launching a new series tonight. That's our series for the entire summer. Let's do it just a giveaway online. So if you're, if you're watching online and you're in the chat, the first person to define what the word protagonist means that's the most common question we've gotten for this series. And uh, so first person to find that in the chat, we're gonna, uh, one of our hosts will make a note and we're going to send you a gift. So protagonists, anonymous, minor roles, major lessons. Father, as we just jump into this entire summer, as we begin to look at the lives of people that are often overlooked in Scripture because their role is minor, the fact that you put them in the Bible the fact that they made the edit, we know that there is something that is prophetically significant about every name and every moment. So help us, God, as this, this summer is not that we're ignoring the heroes that we all know, but, but that we want our list of who we believe to be the Bible heroes to grow 
this summer and the truth that comes from their lives. Come on in Christ's name and everybody said together, amen. We're, we're going to be working out of Acts 5, so if you want to turn to a text, uh, you can jump there. Uh, we're, we're, I'm going to give you a little bit of recap, just again for the sake of time. But Acts 5, 1 through 11 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You're familiar with that. They lied at the offering time, uh, and, 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 and they died because of that. Just this, this idea of the, the seriousness is, is to God when it comes to integrity and, and honesty. Uh, and then we're not surprised that it says, after the telling of that story, that all the people... Uh, were in the fear of the Lord uh, and the apostles, right? When somebody dies in a church service because they lied, right? Everybody really s- sits up and takes notice. But, it, but it's interesting, these people that we call apostles, they've not always been apostles. And, and if that term is unfamiliar to you, it's because you're, you know them as the disciples. Well, they were the disciples when they were the understudy of Christ. But when he left and commissioned them and sent them out into the world to build his dream and the vision of the church, they became apostles, which literally means to be sent out. And so these apostles that were once disciples, are now spiritual giants in Jerusalem. Every single one of them at some point was a failure. Every young Jewish boy at some point dreamed, and his parents dreamed for him, for him to grow up to be a rabbi. And the fact that none of them were rabbis, and that all of them had a vocation of sorts, it means that at some point somebody looked at them and said, you're not good enough to do what we do. But now they are the spiritual giants of the spiritual center of Judaism in Jerusalem. The signs and the wonders that they were performing are befuddling as we read through the book of Acts. It is mind-boggling, the outpouring of the supernatural that came through these men and women. It tells us stories that people that couldn't get to Peter would just try to be in a position so his shadow would pass over them. And many times as his shadow would pass over them, they would find healing. Unbelievable, the outpouring. Verses 12 and 16 tells us about many of these signs and wonders and all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But then we come to verse 17 and we see that they are arrested. Now we're going to get into that tonight of why they were arrested and why the religious leaders of their day, like with Jesus, felt so threatened by them. And then as they are in prison, we're not told specifically how many, it's just, it says the apostles, and, but, so it's clearly several of them, that in the middle of the night, God sent an angel to open up that prison and to release them and put them back into the temple court. So when it was morning and the religious leaders woke up and were planning to deal with these apostles that they had arrested, they get word that they're in the temple courts teaching and preaching, which is where they had been arrested from. And they go to the prison and everything's intact. You, you think that would be enough, right, for them to say, you know, maybe we should just leave these people alone. They are threatened. And here we come in Acts 5, 29 to 33, and we find their response. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority because they have been commanded to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him. By hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. Verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. Now I'm going to keep reading down to verse 40. It says, when they heard this, the high council, that's the Sanhedrin, was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. They wanted to have a private conversation. And then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, Take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow, Thutius, who pretended to be someone great, and about 400 others joined him, and he was killed. And all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely of their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged, which is no small thing. And then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Who is this man, Gamaliel, that he would hold such sway over this group of men? Now, we're going to do a deep dive into history. Do I have any history nerds here with me tonight? I know. We don't do this very often because we know that we are in the minority, but you're going to deal with us tonight. Gamaliel, Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, Talmud. It's not Guardian of the Galaxy 3. These are all Bible terms, just in case you were wondering if you're a millennial. The Sanhedrin, 71 of the most influential leaders of their day, formed this group. Now, you can think of them as both a religious organization and also a political organization. They were kind of both combined together as one. There were two primary parties that made up the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the the, the greater majority. They were from the wealthier class. The Pharisees were a very small minority, but they had the support of the working people, and they were the experts in the law. Now, they did not like each other. Now, we're, we're familiar with this in our political system. They did not like each other. They despised one another. And, and, and I just I want to put it in perspective. So when Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, stands up and, and gives advice that the entire body of the Sanhedrin chose to follow, I want you to understand it would be the same thing if Nancy Pelosi stood up, not trying to be political, just giving you context here. These people got really nervous all of a sudden. It's the same if Nancy Pelosi stood up in the House and said, I have an idea. And every Republican said, I think we should do that. That's a great idea. You're like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, same thing 2,000 years ago. How about Mitch McConnell gets up in the Senate, gives an idea. Every Democrat says, you know what? That's a great idea. We should do that. Yet political parties that do not like each other do not follow each other. But yet here in this moment, they did. And not only that, but he's in the minority He's of the group that does not hold the power in the seat in the house. These men, as 
all of Judaism held sacred what they called the Torah, which is the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes that term refers to the first five books, sometimes also called the Pentateuch. But the Torah in general was the entire Hebrew Bible. So when you read about this phrase, Scripture, in the New Testament, remember the New Testament wasn't written yet. It's 27 books. Now, some of them were written later, but most of them, when it's talking about Scripture, they're referring to the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's what Holy Scripture was to them. And in the Torah, in the Old Testament, right, Genesis to Malachi, there are 613 specific commandments. 613! We can't remember 10 as modern-day Christians, right? This one, right? 613, can you imagine? 613, you had to know, be familiar with, live by. And that did not include all the oral traditions and the traditions of the elders that were on top of the 613. The oral traditions and the tradition of the elders were the teachings that helped people understand what the commandment meant for you. So like we understand that there was a commandment about Sabbath, but it didn't really go into great detail in every circumstance and every situation. We've used this analogy before. This is real. So in Jesus' day, because of the Sabbath, if you had a toothache and a common remedy was to rinse your mouth with vinegar to kill the infection, you were not allowed to spit that vinegar out because you would be practicing medicine, which was forbidden in the tradition of the elders out of respect for the Sabbath. You had to swallow it because that would be considered eating. Right? This is the kind of legalism that they lived under in the time of Jesus and the apostles that followed Now, if 613 commandments isn't enough for you, eventually they wrote something called the Mishnah, which in Hebrew means repeated study. Let me read this to you. It says, a topical compilation of all the oral laws followed by Jewish people that was finalized in the third century that took over 200 years to compile and edit. You understand this idea of 200 years, right? It means that the people that had the vision for it had to pass it on to other generations, generation after generation, in order for it to be completed for 200 years. Think about what the average life expectancy was back then. 200 years. So this, this, the vision for the mission was so strong, it continued for generation until it came to fruition. It preserved oral traditions that dated back to the time of Ezra 450 B.C. Now, just stay with me, because this is building to something. You're like, I hope it is. 613 commandments, if that's not enough, they have the Mishnah. All the oral traditions that help people to understand how to live according to those 613 commandments. But that wasn't enough because then they wrote the Gemara. And the Gemara was to help you to understand the Mishnah, which was to help you to understand the Torah. These were a people that believed in the sacredness of the written word. And to make sure that they understood exactly what it meant for them. And if that's not enough, eventually they wrote the Talmud, compiled between the 3rd and 6th centuries A.D., which combined the Mishnah and the Gemara, and adding additional commentary and additional discussion. And there was a man by the name of Hillel the Elder who lived from 110 B.C. to 10 A.D., and he was one of the most respected religious minds of his day and was central in the development of both the Mishnah and the Talmud. This man, Hillel the Elder, We don't know exactly which one. Arguments are made for both. He's either the father or the grandfather of Gamaliel. So when Gamaliel stands up, he's not just standing up as a person in the Sanhedrin. He's standing up with a name. But he's not just standing up 
as a man with a name. He's standing up as a man with a name that is connected to the, the, the process of creation. It's not finished yet, but it's in the works of some of the most sacred writings to the Jewish people that they have. He represents for them a way of life. And this way of life is centered around the worship of what they believed, as we do to the one true God. Now, we understand the sacredness of these writings because we have writings that are sacred to us as well, do we not? And if you get mentioned in one of these sacred writings, you're somebody. Not everybody who was important and significant is mentioned by name in the Mishnah. Now, we understand this through athletics. Through athletics, sometimes people are all-stars or they make the Pro Bowl, but, but not every athlete does. And then those who are all-stars and make the Pro Bowl, not all of them enter into the Hall of Fame. We, we understand this idea of significance over significance, excellence over excellence. But if your name is mentioned in the Mishnah, you're somebody, and Gamaliel is there. Listen to what the Mishnah says about him. Since rabbin, I wasn't familiar with this term, rabbin. It means that somebody who's even more held in high esteem than a rabbi. You've got rabbis, and then you have rabbins. Since rabbin Gamaliel the elder, right? That's a title right there. Rabbin Gamaliel the elder. Since he died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity, and abstinence died out with him at the same time. Now, that's a statement about the purity of somebody's life. That's a statement about someone's character. You see, if, if you're jaded, you might say, well, the only reason people listened to him because he was of influence because of his name. But we know that's not the case because of the story of his name, the story of his family, and what was said about him in the Mishnah. And I'm sharing all of that with you because this is the question that I want to ask you, the first of two questions I'm asking you tonight is, is your character undermining your influence? Is your character, is my character undermining my influence? You see, because all of us have a Sanhedrin that God has put us into, it is a community of people that we are in relationship with, and not all of those people are always going to agree. And in fact, many times, if it's the kind of community that God intends to put together, there will be a vast variety of perspective and opinion in that group, because true biblical unity requires diversity, which demands harmony. And there will be times in your life where you're supposed to be the voice of influence. The question is, will people see your character and not want to listen to what you have to say? Gamaliel moved in that room because of the reputation of his life. Even people that despised him. What if we all looked at the last three years of our lives? What if we looked at the last three years of our lives and looked at all the disagreements that we had with people? How many of those disagreements ended in the fracturing of relationship? Because if the frequency of fracturing of relationship is a recurring theme in our lives and in disagreements with people, then my suspicion is it's not because there is a lack of coming together of the minds, it's because there is a character problem. Now, now, I get it, right? 
even if your character is not the one that is a problem, sometimes relationship fracture because of the character of the other person. I understand that. Fracturing of relationships is unavoidable in this life because of the character of other people. And also sometimes because of the character of our own. The, the question is, the question is, is it the exception or is it the norm? People would rather be wrong. I know this because I'm talking about myself. People would rather be wrong and know that they're wrong than agree with someone who has a bad attitude. You know this is true if you're married. Yeah, right? You, you, <laughs> that's great. Got to preach for my wife on the front row if you're watching at home online. But you know this is true. We would rather be wrong and know that we're wrong and pretend that we're right than stand with someone whose character we think is poor. I saw this stat this week, George Barna, the Barna Study Group. Listen to this. 80% of people, people who are not Christians, 80% of people who are not Christians know we're Christian. 80%. Only 15% of those people, of the 80%, say that the Christian that they know, that their lifestyle is any different than theirs. You, you want to know why the church has lost its influence in society? That's it right there. That's it right there. Is our character undermining our influence? Let me read you a little list that you might be familiar with here at the City Life Church. Our list of 24 virtues. Authentic, content, hospitable, Truthful, persevering, wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, forgiving, believing, and self-control. 24 virtues from the five great growth lists in the Bible that we believe create for us the perfect picture of the character of Christ. The question for us tonight is, is that our character? Because if it is not, then we are undermining the influence that we're supposed to have in this world to the Sanhedrin that God has put us in, the community that we are a part of, the people that we are supposed to speak to. Is my character undermining my influence? Number two, somebody say land, law, and temple. Land, law, and and temple. So, so why were these religious leaders so upset by the apostles? Because when someone tries to take something from you that's important to you, you have an emotional response. I brought some things out of my office. My office is filled with things that are meaningful to me. Shotgun shell. You've never expect adrenaline to course through your body like it does when a 200-pound hog is charging at you, and you think to yourself, if I don't make this shot, it's not going to go well for me. Uh-huh. My first hog in Florida. Not poker chips, Harley Davidson chips for my good friend Jonathan Adams. He travels around, he brings me a chip from the Harley stores. I have them in my office. It makes me think of him often. Have a wooden cross up here that my father always wore, never left the house without it. Have a little Buzz Lightyear here that was given to me by the mother of a child who died in when I did their funeral, one of his favorite people was Buzz Lightyear. 
to infinity and beyond. One of my most cherished gifts right there is a pastor, that little Buzz Lightyear Christmas ornament. Now, you might not know this, but it's against the law in the state of Virginia to use physical force in defense of property. But if you were to wander in my office while I'm in there and try to take these things from me, <laughs> I might be looking up in the uh, City Life Human Resources Manual to see if there's a provision for bail for the pastor. Because when people try to take things from us that matter to us, we have a visceral reaction that sometimes is beyond our control. And I think sometimes, myself included, we look at these religious leaders and we don't understand why they were so angry. And it's because we know the end of the story, but when they were in it, they didn't. And these new upstarts were threatening to take from them things that were sacred to them, things that God himself had given them. Now, for the sake of time, if you want to download these notes, you can, but I'm not going to read all of these texts. But in Exodus 23, 27 to 31, is a great text that talks to us about the land that was given by God to Israel. That's important to us. We believe that it still stands true for today. It is a sacred inheritance. Sacred! So when Jesus comes along in Matthew 24, 35 and says, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear, they heard something. They heard something that frightened them and threatened them. What do you you mean that heaven and earth is going to pass away? See, See, their idea of a Messiah was someone who was going to come and secure the land and the law and the temple for them as a people forever. Forever. So when someone comes along and says heaven and earth is going to pass away, they hear the land that we believe that God gave to us is going to be with us forever. Don't tell me that one day we will be in a place where this land won't belong to us. I don't care who you say you are and where you came from. If if it's taking from us what God gave to us, then how could you be from him? It gives us a little bit of empathy, doesn't it, for these leaders Exodus 24, 9 through 11, it's an incredible story. We, we know about Moses on the mountain. I think sometimes we forget that he took a group of elders up onto the mountain, and it says that they sat with God and had dinner with him. Did you know that? It's incredible. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Not only was the land a sacred inheritance, but the law was a sacred gift. A sacred gift. God, God gave it to them. He invited them to be his people, and then he gave them this this, this law that we call the law of Moses. Now, yeah, we've been delivered from it, but before we were delivered from it, this was the word of the Lord for his people. So again, in Matthew 24, 35, just a great example. There are many more. When Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, and my words will never pass away, he understood what they meant. Your words, the traditions of the elders, the oral traditions that are based on the law of Moses, one day the things that you say, The Mishnah, the Torah, the Talmud, these things that you hold sacred one day, one day they will pass away and my words will be what prevail. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just slow down there, young fella. You You understand, right? He's taking from them sacred things that God had put in their hands and charged them to be the keepers of for all of time. And the Messiah was supposed to be the one who was going to come and secure it forever. 
And he's not done. The land, the law, and the temple. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. See, there was also a sacred place. A sacred place. An inheritance, a gift, and a place. The literal presence of God would come and fill the temple. God himself was there. It wasn't metaphoric. It wasn't fanciful. It was real. It was real. And people came there to be near to him. So when Jesus started talking about tearing down the temple, when Jesus began to equate the idea of the temple of the body being more significant than the temple of the place, it enraged them. In in fact, one of the reasons why these apostles were turned loose is because they had not crossed the final line of what would be considered Jewish apostasy by speaking out publicly against the land and the law of the temple. One of the very first people to do that that's recorded for us is Stephen, which is one of the reasons why he was stoned on the spot. Because if you were to commit Jewish apostasy according to Jewish law, it was punishable by death. Serious business in Jesus' day. So this is my second question for us tonight. Am I holding on to things from my past that stop me from joining God in what he is doing now? Am I holding on to things from my past that stop me from joining God in what he's doing now? I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we're going to close in a song tonight because I want to create a moment for you to reflect on these two questions. And what I want to point out, in case you haven't, seen it already. We talk a lot about in this church about things from our past keeping us from being able to join in with God in the, in the moment. We talk about our past hurts. We talk about our past betrayals. We talk about our, our past disappointments, things that have happened to us, right? Wounds that we carry. We talk about those things. But you know one of the things that I realize we don't talk a lot about are the things from our past that God gave us that now he's asking us to lay down. And if you hold on to them longer than you're supposed to, they are just as destructive in your life as the wounds that you need healing from. And I would argue that I think these are the things that are harder to lay down because it's harder for us to believe that he would ask us to set aside something that maybe he once gave us. And let me just give you, let me give you a couple of practical examples. We do a lot of counseling with couples as they're getting ready to get married. In our first counseling session, we talk about the biblical concept of leaving cleave. See, mom, if you have a daughter that's getting ready to get married, God gave you a sacred relationship with her. But after she gets married, if you demand that same kind of relationship that God himself gave to you, you will be a source of destruction in that marriage because the nature of that relationship has to change in order for that marriage to thrive. It is a very hard thing. It is a very hard thing for a mother to give that up. Sometimes it's a very hard thing for a daughter to give that up, which makes life a very hard thing for that husband who's marrying this daughter, who has a mother. How about our empty nesters that are here tonight? Don't get us started on that one because we're right on the precipice of this. See, when God gives you a child, he gives you something sacred. You're responsible for that child, to parent that child. You're in authority over that child's life. We teach this in our parenting curriculums. But at some point, you've got to stop being an authority over them and be an influence on them. And at some point, you've got to go from being an influence on them to a friend who walks with them 
And if you don't do that right, look out, because at some point, you know what's gonna happen? We get old, and we don't know what we're doing anymore. And we want them to be an influence on us, and at some point, they become authority over us. <laughs> it's true. It's hard for us. These relationships are sacred. But sometimes God says, hey, it's time to lay it down, and it's time to pick up something else. Now, there's all kinds of lists that we could think of about in this journey in life of things that God has given to us. Sometimes he gives us assignments in our life and ministry, and he says, now, I want you to lay that down, and I want you to pick something else up. We get stuck here. We're, we're here as a church. I wasn't planning on talking about this tonight, but we're, we're, we're there as a church with the closing of the Suffolk campus. We have to be careful. Things that God gives us to carry for a time and a season, and we think it's going to be forever. Sometimes he says, no, it's time to lay it down. It was sacred for the time that you carried it, but if you carry it longer than you're supposed to, sometimes we begin to work against the God that we're supposed to be working with. And it's up to us to discern the times and the seasons of change. So as we sing this song together, there's room to still social distance and be at this altar. But if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I'm one of those people, my character is undermining my influence, I would invite you to come and just kneel and ask God to begin to reveal to you the parts of your character that he wants to change. If you're here tonight and you realize that you're holding on to some things and you need to let go sacred things from your past and it's time to just leave them here tonight. Just leave them here. Just leave them here. And trust that God's going to fill your, your hand with new things and new treasures for the adventure of your future. Stand with me as we pray. Father, I just I thank you tonight for this moment that you brought us to. I, I thank you tonight for this, this song that we're about ready to enter into. I, I thank you tonight, God, for these minor roles and these major lessons. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making sure that Gamaliel made it in. And may it be that the lesson of his life makes it into us. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.